and stand. I'm going to read the scripture for us this morning. Um, We are finishing our series this morning in, in the Psalms. So this summer we have been working our way through the Psalms and hopefully... Uh, we have gathered and learned and gleaned some things from the psalmist of what it means to, to dwell with God, to walk with him, with our full lives, our whole selves. And I think we finished today in a psalm that I hope will breathe life into you, encouragement, excitement, um, to grow your desire for what it is that we're reading this morning. So from Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, the psalmist says this, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, we're we're finishing the series in the Psalms, and, and really our hope as we dove into this this summer is that you would begin to gain some tools, that the, the, the psalm book, the songs of Jesus that we've accompanied with it, a book in the back that if you still want to grab, you can. But really, this is the heartbeat of the people of God. That as we see just different emotions and different seasons and different valleys or peaks that we walk through and what it means to reflect and connect and walk with God through those things. And in many ways, we're ending this series kind of where we started. That if you were with us at the beginning of the summer, if you can go back in your mind that far. It's kind of sad to say it in that way that summer is somewhat ending, but I know some of y'all are looking forward to to cooler weather in about two or three more months. (laughs) We'll get there. But we we started in Psalm 1. And if you remember, the psalmist in the very beginning, this kind of gateway to the book of Psalms laid out these two paths. He said, there's a path towards life and fullness and joy, and there's a path that leads to destruction. And that path to life is found in the one that delights, delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night. And we're finishing this psalm in Psalm 119, which if you're familiar with it, we just read a portion of it. But Psalm 119 is the longest book in the Bible. Therefore, it's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. And it's this acrostic poem that what it does is it works its way through the Hebrew alphabet. It's kind of set up in these chunks. And essentially for us in English, you know, A through Z, but for the, for the Hebrew language, if you saw it, there's kind of the, the Hebrew letter at the top of each of these sections. And in these sections, there's like eight verses, and it's all about God's word. It's all about finding our delight in God's word. I think there's 176 verses, and only two of them don't talk about praising God's word. There's something very important about being someone that delights and desires God's word. I don't think it's a coincidence that in in the Psalms here, the longest chapter, and in the Bible, the the longest chapter in the Bible is all about God's word. And it's that word delight that I just continue to not be able to move past because ultimately I know that we've done some classes, we've done some courses on how you might be able to navigate the scriptures and begin to develop a life that's rich 
uh, in, your, in your time with God, but you can have all the tools. You can kind of have the game plan. Here's the Bible reading plan. But at the end of the day, it's the desire and the delight in it that will drive us forward to be people that are steady and in God's word. It's what we value that will move us into certain directions in life. And I was thinking about this. Uh, I went, there's kind of this, uh, I think it was called like a, a bachelor party, you know. So when a, a guy is becoming a dad for the first time and a couple of guys got away, I'm not naming any names, might be in this room. But we were at this kind of getaway place, little ranch, a couple of guys just having a good time, just celebrating this person who was about to have his first baby. And the person that hosted us, we didn't know if they would be there or not. We were kind of staying at this other house. And at one point in the night, he drives over on his little Jeep or, or Wrangler, whatever it was, and he pulls out like this wine bottle that I've, I've never seen a size this big of a wine bottle. We were like, that just looks important. And of course, there's one guy in the group that just had to look at the label and like Google it and find out how much that thing cost. And at some point, he then tells us what it costs, and I think all of us were like, oh my goodness. We've got to put away the styrofoam cups. We've got to get out the nice glasses. Like, this is going to be unbelievable. Now, I'm not the biggest wine person. I'm, you know, growing in it, but it was, it was good. But I'll tell you, there was something about knowing what it cost, knowing the value of it that just, like, changed the whole setting around experiencing that wine together. And maybe you've had that experience around good food. Or maybe you've had that experience in different settings. You know, some of you as parents, as you know, you have spent a good amount of value on a trip. And you know you're going to make sure your kids get the enjoyment out of it that you paid for. But there really is something about, you know, the, the, the value, the cost of something that affects your enjoyment of it, your desire of it, your delight in it. And what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 119 is he's trying to change our palate. He's trying to have us be people that understand the value of God's word and how worthy it is for you to be somebody that loves and desires and delights in it at all times. And really it's an invitation here to find your delight in that. I, I just, I think it's worth reminding because, you know, this is part of what the psalmist is doing here. He's trying to remind us so that our desire would change, not just this idea that, you know, we, we know we're supposed to be people that get into God's word, but that we would actually delight in it. The psalmist talks about how the word of God is more desirable than gold and silver. It's more precious than anything else, more worthy of our time and our reflection. If you can remember back, like I said, to the Psalm 1, he says the person that delights on it and meditates on God's word, they are like a tree planted by water that in season and out of season, they produce fruit. They're fruitful people. And I've seen this visual play out a little bit in my front yard this summer. My neighbor across the street has these line of trees. Now, he has not watered his grass one day this year. You can tell for most of the yard. Don't worry, they're not here. But there, there, there is this, like, clear delineation between the part of his yard that is covered by these trees and then the part that is completely exposed. It's like brown and crusty grass, and then under this tree that hasn't been watered, it's like nothing has happened. It's just like beautiful green grass. And that, and that visual to me has made me think a lot about Psalm 1, that for the people of God, that we are called to be fruitful people. 
that whether we find ourselves in drought or whether we find ourselves in a season where, you know, it is producing much rain, whatever it is, we're, we're to be people that know what it is to be fruitful, but it can't be done apart from being somebody that it's rooted in God's word. Prophet Hosea says that, his, that the people perish for lack of knowledge. In the wisdom books drive home that wisdom and knowledge, life and direction are found in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, his word and his way. And I just pulled out three of these passages. These are really famous passages. You have read them. I'm sure you've heard of them. But I think all of these are to, to motivate us, to grow our desires. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. The Spirit of God penned the words of Scripture. Hebrews 4.12, another one very famous, The Word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And one of my favorites, I've mentioned this before, but I had this youth pastor that every time he preached, I could care nothing about Jesus. But he held up his Bible and he said, the prophet Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And every time he'd make us respond and say, he'd say, what does that mean? And he would go on to say that it means everything you come into contact with is heading towards de- decaying. That sin has uprooted things, that things are dying. But the word of God is lasting and forever. There's no more greater thing we can build our life on. Do you see what the, what the psalmist and what the scriptures are trying to do is to have us correctly value what it is that we have. That it's precisely in being somebody rooted in the scripture that the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Christ. The Lord opens the eyes of the heart to see the glory of Christ in the word. And God has chosen to reveal himself mainly through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, by means of the written word. And I start here just to say, do you cherish God's word? Because I think, like I said, ultimately in our heads, we know that we're supposed to. And what we're going to see the psalmist, he has a really honest and open struggle that I think we all do that we don't quite cherish it the way that maybe we know we're supposed to. But if this is true, if, if we would agree with those statements in our head, something's missing because as we look at just the way that we spend our time, the way that we find our regular rhythm of digesting God's word, there's either a disconnect between our head and our heart. Often I, I get this illustration that I think it's like scriptures like medicine at times, that we know it's good for us, we know we should take it, but, like, as you digest a medicine that doesn't taste well, you know, it kind of gives you, like, the, uh. And sometimes we find ourselves in that rhythm with Scripture. Like, I know I should, but I don't really desire it. I want to read this quote. C.S. Lewis says that we tend to view God's law as inhibiting human flourishing. And in a, in a letter he wrote to his friend, he said this. He said, God, does, God not only understands but shares the desire which is at the root of all my evil. The desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. He made me for no other purpose than to enjoy it. But he knows, and I do not, how such happiness can really and permanently be attained. This is why God has given us his law, to guide us into those paths of life and happiness. But C.S. Lewis goes on to say, and I think this is where it connects with us. He says, I think we might be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion 
It raises its head in every temptation that there is something else other than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be a real delight if only we were allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us, a false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. And I love that quote. I think C.S. Lewis, like he is often, just pinpoints it exactly. That in some ways, deep down, these desires that we have that often we look to fulfill in different ways, we believe that maybe God is holding out on us. And I love that line at the end that he says that if we actually saw that false picture we're believing in and what it led to, it would, it would not be delightful at all. So as I mentioned, where, where I just want to spend the, the rest of our time here this morning is what do we do when we, we don't find ourselves delighting or desiring God's word? Well, what do we do just as you look at the patterns of your life and you don't really see this consistent rhythm of being somebody that makes time? What do we do then? And you saw it here in verses 36 and 37. I just want to recall your attention to it. The psalmist says, this is all pleading with God. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And you see, ultimately, and this is why I think the Psalms are are so wonderful, that the psalmist relates with us. That he says, God, if you don't do this, if you don't incline my heart to your testimonies, my heart is inclined towards selfish gain. My, my heart is inclined towards pursuits and things that ultimately are about me and ultimately will not lead me in the paths of life. And this second part, the second request of his, I think is really pertinent to us today, but he says, turn my eyes from worthless things. That he knows, too, that his, his, he is somebody that is inclined to turn his eyes and his, his attention to worthless things. And the reason I think this is a pertinent struggle for us, maybe more than ever, is I think there's always been distraction. There's always been things that could pull our hearts and our eyes away from God's word and and walking the path to life. But has there ever been a time that's just easier with technology, with our cell phones? Again, it's kind of one of these issues that we often live with, knowing that we kind of have an unhealthy relationship, but we don't quite have the willpower. We don't really care to, to make some of the changes to be somebody that is not so caught up consistently in it. So I just want to offer a couple things. If, if you would say, I would love to delight and desire God's word more than I do. And the, the first thing I, I just would invite you into, I think the psalmist does, is he asks you to take inventory. That if, if you see this, Charles Spurgeon says, it's the tendency of things that are gazed at to get through the eyes into the mind and into the heart. That ultimately worthless things in the eye gazed at become worthless things lodged in the heart. That where our attention goes, there our heart goes. And the take inventory one is, I think, important because we're going to talk about the next step following this. But if we don't know, like the psalmist, what it is, the selfish gain or the worthless things that we're inclined to be pulled towards, if we're not aware of what those consistent patterns are in our life, then we might not be able to actually effectively battle through them and get through with how God gives us the medicine to do that. I was thinking about this with Michael Phelps, or you've maybe seen different athletes who kind of close their eyes. Golfers do this sometimes. I think Jason Day is one of them. He'll close his eyes kind of strangely. His like, eyes like flicker, 
but they're shut. Every, every time before a shot. Michael Phelps did this too. He would visualize his race apparently hundreds of times before he ever actually entered into the pool. That he had already played the race out in his mind 100 times, all the different scenarios. And he visualized that, that discipline in his life because that visualization in some ways, now Michael Phelps is a freak athlete, but that visualization was also a part of that becoming actuality in his life. That he understand, I think what the psalmist understood is that where our gaze is fixed, where our eyes, the things we visualize pull us in that direction. And so it's the question of just what, as you kind of take inventory, maybe look back on a week, do you ever set aside time on a Sunday or maybe at the end of a month to just, just be honest about your schedule and where your time, where your energy, where your affections have been consistently lived into? That's a very important part if we're going to be somebody that grows in our desire of God's word. It's, it's kind of like the iPhone report that we get. Some of you probably don't like to get that at the end of a week where it really gives you the diagnosis of how much time you've spent and then where you've spent it. There's definitely weeks and times where I do not want to look at that thing. But there's something healthy in that, that, that prognosis, that understanding of, wow, that is how much time I spend in this app in this place and in many ways too that we're supposed to kind of be somebody that's aware of those patterns and rhythms of our life and we've got to take inventory but the reason I I asked first to take inventory is not that we would just be people that really know ourselves really well and live there but ultimately what's going to uproot those worthless things and those selfish gleams is a greater desire a greater delight you know, I was with some guys this weekend, some, some buddies from college, and we begin to just talk about how life is going, how marriage is, or just relationships, or things like that. And one of my buddies, he has a job where he spends a lot of time in the fall on the road, hotel rooms. He says, it's real lonely. It's a really challenging phase of life for me. That I have these certain temptations. And as he began to share, it was kind of like, he was being very honest, but it was almost like, it's just going to be a really tough fall. Like, I know I should you know, avoid certain temptations, but they're just there at every corner. And as we began to listen to him, I, I, I heard myself and him talking and that often the way we talk about following Jesus is this, this path of we're just not supposed to do certain things. But I was reminded, and I'm going to mention this, this guy, Thomas Kramer, who talks about the way that we really walk passionately with Christ is that there's just a greater desire that pulls us out of those things, that we need to fill those gains and those worthless things with something that's much greater. And so Thomas Kramer, who I mentioned, he wrote this in one of his sermons. He talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. And he says, our problem, he explained, is that naturally our lives are guided and controlled by a love for the world. What can we do? Resolve to do better? Try to convince ourselves that the world is not really so alluring after all? No, he said, that it is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, for nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection but by the expulsive power of a new one. We cannot choose what we love, but always love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change what we love when someone or something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin in the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. And this is precisely what the Spirit does to us as we are someone that delights and spends time in God's word. He makes us taste and see that the Lord is good supremely good. And thus he creates us to desire him. 
He says, he that the love of God so sets himself forth in characters of endearment that not but faith and not but understanding are wanting on your part to call forth the love of your heart back again to God. And I love that. It's this reminder that ultimately as you're somebody that begins to prioritize God's word, what begins to happen is you find a better and a greater delight that your eyes are beginning to turn, that your affections do change as you live and dwell and walk in God's word. Precisely what God promises to do by the Spirit. But ultimately, so take inventory, find a greater delight, but ultimately I think we all know that we can find ourselves maybe finding the discipline in, in Scripture, but yet that desire doesn't, doesn't seem to grow. And this is just kind of where I would like to close us. That when we find that our desire for God is still stifled, what do we do? And I read something, it was an article, I think it's, you know, uh, it was a Desiring God article from John Piper this week. And he talked about that in his pastoral ministry, so many people have come up to him and have said and complained to him that they just don't have motivation to read the Bible. They have a sense of the duty that they should, but the desire is not there. And he said, it's remarkable how many of those people feel that the absence of the desire is the last nail in the coffin of joyful meditation on God's word. So then he asks them to describe what it is that they are doing about it, and they look at him as if he didn't hear the question properly. He says, what do you mean? What can you do about the absence of desire, they wonder? It is not a matter of doing, it's a matter of feeling. They protest. And he says that the problem with this response is that these folks have not just lost the desire for God's word, but they have lost sight of the sovereign power of God who gives that desire. They're acting like practical atheists. And that's the the title of the article, Acting Like Practical Atheists. And, you know, I was moved by that. Because I think often it is that, that lack of desire, that lack of feeling, and that kind of, for us, means we move on until that desire grows. You know what? I just don't feel it today, and it's time to get on with life and work. But he says that's like living like an atheist where you don't believe God, the power, the, the, the maker of heaven and earth. He, he has the ability to grow and give us that desire. And what you see the psalmist doing here is really what we should do, which is pleading with God. And that's what he goes on to say, recognizing actually from this psalm that the psalmist too felt the tendency to drift away from the word of God. He says, I cannot stress enough how our real spiritual helplessness should be accompanied by the daily cry to God that he would sustain and awaken our desire to read his word. Too many of us are passive when it comes to our spiritual affections. We think there's nothing we can do. But this isn't the way the psalmist lived. This isn't the way that people in church history have lived, that they very much have understood that there's something we have to do at our desire level. The main battles in life are not necessarily our deeds, but our desires. Paul in Colossians 3.5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. He included in that list passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He said, these are the great destroyers of desire for the word of God. And what did Jesus say? If you remember in the Gospels, he said, what takes away our desire for God and his word and his ways? He says, it's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things that enter in and choke the word. Paul tells us to kill those desires before they kill us. He encourages us to fight for our lives, and that is a fight for your desire for God's word. And I wonder this morning if, if that's a fight that you feel like you've taken up. 
to be somebody that fights at the, the level of your desires, that you wouldn't give in just when they dip into a lull. You see, what the psalmist does is that he takes that, that prayer and says, God, you've got to incline my heart to your testimonies. I mean, one thing to do there is just to take that short scripture and would that be a prayer for you this week? I actually think in this psalm, if you wanted to in the week ahead, that there's eight verses in this psalm, but there's seven imperatives. There's seven kind of cries the psalmist gives to God, right? Teach me, give me understanding, help me to walk in your way. You might just take one of those cries, one of those psalms, one of those scriptures for the week, and as you start your morning, this is what we learn in the psalms. We return these, these scriptures and these cries to God for us. That that might be that action towards movement for you. And ultimately, I think it's a good reminder that Christ actually died for our desire. That on the night that Jesus, we're going to go to the table here in a second, but on the night that he was betrayed, he, he pours out the cup and he says, this is the new covenant of my blood which has been poured out for you. And that new covenant, what you, what you hear about in the Old Testament just echoes, but what we see in the New Testament is that what Christ died for was turning people's hearts to God's word and God's ways, to giving them that desire. And on this basis of this forgiveness, the other blessings of the new covenant life flow to, our, to God's people. And they mostly relate to our change of desires. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. That ultimately Jesus died in order to change our desires. So when we pray and climb my heart to your testimonies, we are admitting that we have cool and cold hearts. That we don't deserve anything, but because of what Jesus has purchased, that he can actually and he wants to warm our affections. That Christ died to change our desires and he is able and he is willing. And I think the charge as we finish this series and we begin a, a series in the, in the fall that Char Charlie will announce and mention, one that we're really excited about as we think about being a neighborhood church planted in this place and what it means to live on mission. We first got to be a people that delight and desire and walk in God's word and God's way. And so for some of us, it might just be starting in the place where we confess and admit and repent of the places where we know that that desire has not been strong in our heart and in our life. The psalmist ends Psalm, this passage of Psalm 119. He says in verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts, and in your righteousness give me life. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we would also long for God's word and his precepts and that we would see and walk in the life that he has paid for us. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, your reminder. That as we gathered here this morning, that as you have invited us, called us into worship, that we have sung and lifted our eyes, even in the second song we sang, Be Thou My Vision. God, as we have walk through this liturgy of confessing our sin, receiving your love and your pardon for us, and now hearing your word, and then moving to the table where we actually visually taste and see and experience your word. I pray, Father, that we would see and understand and desire and delight and find our joy 
as people who make time and cut out the rhythm and that we will fight our desires if they don't align and match with yours. That we would see the path to life that you've offered and that we would begin to cherish and delight in your word, which leads us to life. Holy Spirit, we need your help to do that. I pray that as we come to the communion table this morning that we might be renewed and reminded and drawn as we see a picture of your love for us that is very real. We love you, Father. We're grateful, and we pray all this in Jesus' name.